This is Way Family Church, and you're listening to our sermon podcast. We invite you to join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030. We meet at Lawford Middle School in Tucson, Arizona. For more information about who we are, upcoming events, or if you'd like to connect, visit us online at www.wayfamily.church. Now get your Bibles ready, and let's begin. All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 13 through 17 this morning. Now, as we start, let's do something here. You guys have good imaginations? Let's imagine we're in the scene, meaning we're right there by the River Jordan. And we've come because we've heard of this great man, this great preacher named John, who's known as the baptizer. So put yourself there, okay? Uh, Maybe this picture will help you. I have a little image here. This is the Jordan River. Maybe you're somewhere off the banks of this place. But there's a crowd with you. You're not alone. There are people there that you know, people there that you would consider to be friends, people there that you would consider to be family. In fact, look around. Everyone here is there. Just imagine yourself being there. And to your surprise, there's people there that you didn't even imagine would be there. Neighbors, friends from a while ago, people that you didn't even like or even imagine would be there. You're looking around and you're seeing them and you're surprised. But there's one thing that you're there for, and it is the message that John the Baptist is proclaiming. It's a message of repentance. And as you're there, you're listening to his words, and his words hold weight. They're heavy. They mean something to you. It is interesting because they are both convicting and exposing, and at the same time, they're full of hope and future and something bright like light. And so that's where you are. You're hearing this preacher. You're hearing every one of his words, and again, exposed, and again, filled with hope. What a paradox. And everyone around you is beginning to line up. As he calls, he says, repent and be baptized. People are understanding the necessity of change. People are coming to realize, I can't do this on my own. People are coming to understand that everything that I've done in life just doesn't work. Even my most heroic and brave moments, even the smartest moments, even when I exercise the best wisdom that I possess, it ends up being a total disaster. It ends up being something where hindsight 2020, I realized, man, that was pretty idiotic. And so the call to come, repent and be baptized is making sense. You're realizing, I can't do this on my own. I need a savior. And meanwhile, John the baptizer is proclaiming that savior. That's his entire message. He says, someone is coming, someone much greater than I. I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandals. Can you imagine that? And you think, well, this is a great man. That means that the one whom we anticipate is far greater. If this is the herald of that king, that king's got to be amazing. That king's got to be quite the sight. That king is one of those where you just recognize that there's something about you. I want to follow you. 
And so people are coming and everyone's lining up to be baptized. Again, you're, you're there and you're recognizing that you can't do it on your own. You're recognizing that you need help and no one around you can actually help you except for this coming king. And then you're there, you understand that this king who John has been preparing for, for you for has the authority and it's an, an incredible authority. He has the authority to save you as he does the authority to condemn you. That's an interesting thought. This king has the ability to save me or condemn me. He can do both. And so what must I do to be saved is what crosses your mind because the message is clear. This guy, this coming king is not messing around. In fact, we've been anticipating him. We've been waiting for him. We've been longing for him. We've been hearing of him from prophets of old, prophets like Isaiah, like Amos, like Hosea, people that we've been heard from, the people that, 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 that we've been taught about. We've memorized these words, and, and we know that the time is near where the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whom we address as the Messiah, will come with the authority to save or condemn. He will gather the, those who are fruitful unto himself, and listen to this, you come to an understanding that he will burn the fruitless, the proud, the unrepentant with an unquenchable fire. Something hits you, you begin to realize the harvest has begun because this is a picture of a harvest. The good stuff goes into the barns and is used. We profit from it. We live by it and the bad stuff is thrown into fire and you're realizing a moment such as this is approaching and is near. And so what do you do? You line up. You want to get into that water. You want to be led in there and you want to be baptized. You know, you realize that he who John has been proclaiming is your only saving grace. And your mind runs wild and you're imagining him. I don't know if you do, but I do often. I imagine Jesus' face. I imagine what he was like. What was he like? And we have so many images that portray him, and I promise you none of those will do justice to the man himself. But you're imagining this king, and you're hoping with all of your heart if you would ever see him. Man, he just sounds way too good to be true. I wonder, will I ever have the privilege to be able to be in his presence? Will I ever have the privilege to be able to put my eyes on him and to just see him. I, I don't care if he doesn't look at me back. I don't care if he doesn't speak to me. I just want to know what he's like. I just want to be in his presence. And so your mind runs wild and you're thinking of this king and you're watching John the baptizer do what he does best. He's proclaiming repentance. He's calling people to repentance, but at the same time, he's delivering a message of hope. And he's baptizing friend after friend, neighbor after neighbor, enemy after enemy. And something incredible is going on there. And you realize you all have something in common. You're all sinners. But there's salvation that's being offered to you. And then all of a sudden, the great John, the baptizer, freezes. Time stands still. In fact, his gaze is locked on something. It's like... What happened? Did he have a stroke? This is so unlike him. What's going on? And everyone's looking around, and perhaps you're mur murmuring with one another, what's going on? What's going on? And then you hear his voice, and he says, 
Behold, the Lamb of God. He's here. The one who takes the sin of the world. That's him right here. He's the one who I've been telling you about. He's here. He's here. And everyone all of a sudden forgets about John, and we fix our gaze on this man whom we know to be Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Sorry, John, don't care about you anymore. And John's right there, and it seems like he's totally amazed, and he's just so overwhelmed. I can just imagine this in my heart. And just like that, Jesus takes the spotlight. Just like that, he approaches. He has come, and he has come to do something very important. He has come to be inaugurated. He has come to be introduced as the legitimate king, the son of God. He has come to be anointed, and he has come to be crowned. Ladies and gentlemen, it's coronation day. This is something to be excited about. And I love this scene in Frozen, right? I imagine Sam's taking a picture right now. Okay. <laughs> she is sleeping, and then when she realizes it's coronation day, she's wide awake instantly because there's something special about the crowning of a king or a queen in her case. But today is coronation day for Jesus. Jesus is stepping in to be anointed. Jesus is stepping in to be crowned as the legitimate Messiah, as the Christ. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, and it says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Bow your heads with me. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come with, to you, Father, with open hearts, prepared to receive from you, Lord Jesus. Help us understand your word. We understand that it is profitable for us to be built up according to your will and way. Lord, speak to us today in mighty ways that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So throughout the uh, introduction that we see here, because we're still technically in the introduction of Matthew, the first three chapters, you'll notice that Matthew does not use the term coronation. He does not use the term uh, the crowning of or the commissioning of the king. And you might have noticed that Matthew has beautifully led us to this moment. Every single one of those verses in chapters 1, 2, and 3 has led us to this. We're concluding chapter 3 today. It has been very intentional, and we shouldn't miss it. My hope today is to be able to point these things out to you so that you see the beautiful work that Matthew, the disciple, the apostle of Jesus, has accomplished here. And so we don't see this word about coronation. We don't see this word about commissioning of the king. But you do see the fact that he is publicly anointed 
and he is publicly anointed by something amazing, something beautiful, something that you could have not even anticipated or imagined. Now, the anointing of someone is synonymous to an actual crowning. If you think back, uh, the first king who was ever crowned was anointed first. The prophet of God had to go call him out, anoint him, and then came the crowning. The anointing of the person was synonymous with the crowning of the king. Do you see that? And so it was, the, it was fitting for the prophet of God, the one who was closest to God, to crown the coming king. And so the first king was Saul. And so Samuel goes and he anoints the first king of Israel, Saul. And then eventually after that, he goes and he calls out David and he anoints David to be the future king. But anointing and crowning was synonymous, especially in Israel. And so here we have the anointing of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's coronation day. Do you see that? You follow? And so this is a beautiful scene. Matthew has led us to this. These three chapters all have been leading up to this moment. Matthew began, let's just kind of recap really quick, refresh. In chapter 1, he begins with the introduction of the king by his royal ancestry. Then he explains his arrival, how he came to be, his honor and the adoration he received from men who were considered wise, men from the east who bring gifts fit for a king. And so it gets built up to the point where even his regional, regional excuse me, qualifications are fulfilled by this introduction. So what Matthew's saying is, this is working out. This is working out. This is checking out. This guy really is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah. And then that leads to the herald himself, the announcement that the king is near, and now is his official anointing. It's coronation day. Amen? For the first time, the Lord Jesus fully takes the stage. The spotlight is on him. The scene switches from John, and it is now all about Jesus. No one is really noticing John anymore. I promise you, John becomes very little in the presence of Christ because Jesus is here. You know what that means? That means that the gospel of Jesus has begun. The work is beginning. He is going to begin his ministry from this point forward. The preparations have been made. Let's go. Let's go to work, right? All right, the end. But not really. Because there's something interesting here. And I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking about this scene, I'm thinking, hold on a second. Wait a minute. You hyped that up way too much. Hold the phone. You know what I mean? Like, there's something wrong here. I have questions. And, and, and the first question is, what kind of coronation is this? We're by the riverbank. People are getting baptized. This is a scene of a bunch of sinners who are finally coming to realize that they can't do it on their own. And the king of king, lords of lords, shows up to this scene. There's something that's not adding up, especially this. Think about this. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, and John himself says this about him, the Lamb of God, without stain, without blemish, then why has he come to be baptized? Have you thought about that? If Jesus is sinless, why is he getting baptized? Has he repented? Is there some, there's something interesting going on here, don't you see? You see, it was too good to be true, maybe. But that's exactly what I want to show you today. And I would have said, if I was, that per, if I was in that crowd, because sometimes I'm a skeptic, I would have said, wait a second. 
Are you sure it's that guy? Because he looks pretty ordinary to me. I don't see anything special about him. And here he comes among sinners, getting into the water, and he's saying, John, I'm here to be baptized. Wait a minute. This does not add up to me. I really want to understand this a little bit more. And so, friends, let me just remind you something, because I had to, you know, really look into this and study this. There's a lot to know about this, which is why we're only looking at this portion of Scripture today. This is no earthly king, and this is no earthly kingdom. He is not the king of this world. He is the king of all the universe. This is the king of king, the Lord of lords. He reigns the upside-down kingdom, if you recall. Therefore, no man is qualified to anoint him. There is not a prophet, not even John himself, who was considered to be the greatest among men, isn't qualified to anoint him. This is a very interesting situation. Only God himself could put the crown on him. Only God himself can validify this man, validate this man. Now come and see, I want to show you something, I don't want you to miss it. The triune God becomes present in this place, in this moment, in this scene. We have heard that we serve one God, but there's three in one, right? It is mind-blowing. It blows our brains, may brain matter everywhere. It's hard to understand because God is far greater than we are. And we can think of different reasons or different uh, explanations to be able to make sense of this, but nothing truly will add up to the beautiful and magnificent uh, reality of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. It is an error to think this is the Son and God is the Father. No, for, the God, for God is the Son. God is the Father. God is the Spirit. It is three and one. And that's something that will probably take the rest of your life to come to grips with. I promise you that. But this is a beautiful scene, a beautiful demonstration of that. So let's begin with the first part or the first person of that triune God, and that's the Son. Let's look at the baptism of the Son, verses 13 through 15. Now, this event, as you can already imagine, this is quite epic. It is here where we can actually see the three members of the Trinity come together, and we realize, wow, there's three parts to God. Interesting. Again, still the same God, still one God. Still one Lord. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Truly, that's a little bit confusing, don't you think? And I think we can all agree that this requires some explanation because we're considering the fact that Jesus, uh, Jesus is sinless. And, and John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. So there's something that isn't just, that's not adding up. And so Jesus uh, had no need to renounce himself, no need to repent, no need of that. So then why does he need to be baptized? Why does he come to John's baptism? And I think it's very clear that this is exactly what John thought himself. John the Baptist was as confused as I was, thinking, what are you doing here? You know, and in fact, this is what warrants his response. Verse 14, he says, John would have prevented him. Wait, 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 no, 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 this is wrong. Saying, I need to be baptized by you. I'm not qualified to baptize you. In fact, I don't even know why you're being baptized, I imagine. And he says, and you come to me, question mark. This is something interesting, something confusing. It is as if John felt the need to correct Jesus' theology. Think about that. Jesus is coming, and he's like, hold on a second. I don't know about this. This doesn't seem right. 
Aren't you supposed to be baptizing me? You are sinless, remember, without stain and blemish. Do I need to help you out here, Jesus? And Jesus responds with full authority, knowing who he is. It's as if he says, John, I am theology. John, I am the word. Let me say something to you. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Oh, and then John consented. Oh, now I see, and then John consented. Well, I'll tell you what, John was clearly much smarter than me because I had no idea how he consented so fast to that. That little explanation to me did not satisfy the actual uh, inquiry that I had in my mind. I need to understand, what do you mean by this? You know, there's a lot of follow-up that I have here, and so I looked into this, and I am just so excited to share how beautiful this answer truly is. And I believe that John really understood a lot more than I did at the time. But look at what this answer really means. Because Jesus says, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So that's the answer to the question. Why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. But what does that actually look like? First, Jesus' baptism is an identification with sinners. The fact that he actually showed up in the midst of a bunch of sinners, he's identifying with sinners. He's identifying with people. This divine man is coming to the earth to be identified with us. He doesn't just do it so that we can get to know him. He actually also does it because it was prophesied of him. This is what the Messiah would do. This is exactly what he came for. He came to identify with sinners, to connect with them, that he would take on their sin. In fact, look at Isaiah chapter 53, 12 of the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, prophecy about the suffering servant that he would come on our behalf. It reads this. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was what? Numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he comes and he identifies with sinners. You see, his baptism was for him to be able to identify with something that wasn't him. He was clean and pure, but he comes among sinners. He comes and fulfills this word on this day. Jesus was counted among the rebels in this moment. And not because of his own sin. Let's just clarify that. Hebrews 4.15 makes that clear. He was sinless, but because of our sin. He's the very issue that he came to deal with. And as Jesus identifies with us, we identify with Jesus when we are baptized. So we ought to be baptized if we are believers of Jesus Christ. It is a unity to him, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so Paul helps clarify this a little bit further in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He simply says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? the righteousness of God. So in him identifying with sinners, we are able to be the righteousness of God. We would be able to partake in that righteousness of God. And so in a sense, we see he is fulfilling all righteousness. 
Now, that right there would have been enough for me to consent, as John did. That, for me, if he would have said that to me right there in my ear, I would have been like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go. Hold your breath. Close your eyes. Let's do this, right? But there's more. There's a lot more to this. In fact, I'll give you two more reasons as to why this fulfills all righteousness. The second one is Jesus' baptism is an example for the saints. So he's doing this not just out of necessity, not just out of the fulfillment of prophecy, but also to model obedience for his followers. You see, Jesus is the best leader you could ever find. Jesus modeled exactly what he calls us to do. If he was baptized, guess what? We too should be baptized. Amen? In fact, great leaders lead by example. In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus commands us this thing. He says, go make disciples. Didn't he show us how to do that first? That didn't come out of the blue. He exemplified it. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He showed us exactly what it is that he has commanded us us to do. And baptism is one of them. He is is, demonstrating, he's showing us, he's being the great example that he ought to be. In fact, he only could be the great example. And so that's what he's doing. The Lord clearly commands us that we ought to do these things. And so he sets the stage for us at the beginning of his ministry. He becomes, he comes the perfect example for us. Baptism is central to the mission and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to do. He says, don't miss it. This is important. It fulfills all righteousness. It fulfills all that it is right. Therefore, we ought to. Okay? Once again, I consent. Hold your breath. Close your eyes. I'm going to baptize you now. It makes sense. Well, there's one more thing I want to share with you, and this one's really important. Jesus' baptism was not only an identification with sinners. It wasn't only an example for saints, but this is so beautiful here, and I don't want you to miss it. It is is a picture of salvation. Jesus was showing us something that was to come. It was the picture of salvation itself, which John had been proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, be baptized. It is a symbol of being put to death in Christ and being resurrected to new life. That's what baptism is, is a picture of that. So if you ask a child, in fact, we might ask a child today, or anyone else for that matter. Why did Jesus come? Who wants to answer that, children? Why did Jesus come? Yes, Jaylee. <laughs> That's exactly correct. Does anyone object to that? No? So, so that he could die for our sins, to die. So Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. Although that is a correct answer, that is only half the answer. What's the other half? Anybody? Jesus also came to live a life of obedience, to live a life of example, to live that we may live. Amen? Absolutely. Amen. So any person who trusts in Christ for salvation should be baptized. You know that word means to be immersed? Baptizo? means to be immersed in water as a picture of us dying to sin and ourselves and being resurrected to new life or risen to new life in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. It's an outward expression of an inward conviction. And so let's look at the end of verse 15 again. Then he consented. Well, no doubt. Okay, I'm in. I'm with it. I get it. 
verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Man, I wish I was there. You know how you've been asked the question, if you had a time machine, you could go anywhere in the past, where would you go? I think I would pick that moment right now, because that is incredible. What does this even look like? What does this mean? They said it is like a dove. That's the closest image that they could describe it like, you know? But this is what happens. And so that's the next thing I want to show you is the anointing of the Spirit. The Spirit of God descends on Christ. It's something extremely important to know, though. This is not the first time that the Spirit comes upon Jesus. This is not to say that the Spirit was not on him, and now it is. The Spirit has always been united with Jesus. There has never been any kind of separation. We see that from eternity past, even through Genesis You know, when they say, let us make man in our image, there's this unity between God, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there's no separation there. And in fact, let's just look at a more recent example. If you just flip the page over to chapter 1, verse 18, look at this. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, what happens there? She was found to be child from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit and Jesus have always been united. Verse 20, verse 20 says there in chapter 1, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for this or for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So this is not, let's say, him taking on the Spirit. This is an anointing by the Spirit. This is a public display of what's going on that people would understand and know. It is also the fulfillment of the Lord's Word. Look at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the proud. This is Coronation Day. He's beginning to do this work. He has sent me to what? To bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This anointing is the beginning of that, his mission itself. That is so cool. I am so pumped up right now just thinking about that. And so even though the Spirit and the Son had never been separate, the Spirit of God takes on a form like a dove that it would be visible. You see that? This is important that people would witness this. And I love John's account. He says, I witnessed that. I was there. If you look at the gospel according to John, he says, this is what happened and this is what it looked like. That's so cool, man. I wish I was there too. And then as if that wasn't cool enough, something else happens. The father speaks. I can't even imagine that voice. So I've heard the the Lord speak to me, but not audibly. I've never had that experience except when it thunders and it's monsoon season. I say, is that you, Lord? You know? This is what I imagine the Lord's voice to be like. But God the Father confirms this moment. He confirms Jesus as the Christ, and he also does it publicly, and he does it audibly. This is not people imagining things. This is people witnessing things. You know, God the Father is heard. Look at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, and I can't do this voice justice. I don't have a deep enough voice for this, okay? But he says, Behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. If you imagine just Rafiki, you know, 
after Muf the cloud of Mufasa speaks to, to Simba, he goes, whoa, what was that? If you're in there in the scene, you're realizing, what was that? That's some kind of weather, isn't it? He says something like that. Did you hear that? There's no doubt. The word of the Lord was heard. And notice this, though. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That word son is capitalized. He's not saying this. He's not saying, this is my beloved nijito or mijo. Or this is my beloved child or offspring. That's not what he's saying. He's using the title and it's the word son. He's saying, this is my beloved chosen one, is what he's saying. In fact, this is drawn from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where the Lord speaks of the high king, the high king that he would set over Zion, his holy hill. The psalmist says in Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so what the Lord is doing is he confirming the Messiah, the one who will reign over Zion. And this speaks to the role of the anointed one of God, the Messiah himself. And this is something we ought to know. Kings should fear this man. Kings should bow before this king like the wise men. This is why they're wise, you know, because he is the anointed one of the father because all earth will be his heritage because he has the power to save or to condemn. And God himself has confirmed this and his voice is undeniable. Jesus is God's anointed one, his beloved son, gloriously crowned in this moment as he fulfilled the promises from, of, of the king that was to come, the king, God himself. And so those who stood as witnesses, we're still imagining ourselves there, right? And you just seen this. You just heard this. You just, you're witness to this moment, or at least many of them who were there understood too the prophets of, of, of Isaiah. That if you didn't know, your neighbor probably knew what was foretold or what was told past of who Jesus and the Messiah would be. You would have been familiar with Isaiah's prophecy of the Lord's chosen servant. Now this king, the Lord's chosen servant of God, the Father's words would have actually rung familiar to you. This would not be the first time you heard something like that. God said this. In fact, God, what he's doing is confirming what he has said of his chosen servant in years past. Isaiah chapter 42, 1, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. In other words, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. No doubt, everyone saw that he will bring forth justice to the nations. Wow. At the baptism of Jesus, this word from Isaiah is fulfilled. Isn't that cool? God himself is present in this place. God himself is present in this place. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get better than that. Man, this is probably why so many people are so like, so just like, what's the word I'm looking for? Adamant about knowing exactly where that happened because the presence of the Lord was there, all of it. <laughs> you know, I don't blame him, but that's not important. What's important is Jesus was confirmed. Jesus has been crowned as the Messiah and God himself is present in this place. And you know what? He's the one who does the anointing. 
Wow. Not John. The Lord himself, God himself, anoints Jesus as that suffering servant who will together live and die to justify the the world. So think about this. He's here. So the message you've heard from John, his winnowing fork is at hand. Let's go to work. God's ready to go to work. Jesus is ready to go to work. For the king has come. And John the Baptist has done well, truly well. And today he is honored as one of the greatest ministers of all time. There's no doubt about that. And he does so well in that he points at people to Jesus and then he gets out of the way. Not to say that he abandons ship. In fact, we see that he has disciples. And he guides them and he trains them. But he makes it very clear it's not about him. And it's not about his ability to save anybody. All he does is point them to Christ. You need to understand this. No pastor, no minister, no author, no televangelist, whatever you may think, can save you. Only Jesus himself can. And a good minister will point you to him, will want you to know him. Make no mistake. John prepared the way, and he did it well. He pointed others to the king, to God himself. God himself anointed the king himself. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's just a mystery in itself. Jesus' baptism, now we can see, was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Do you see that? Isn't that cool? Man, I'm telling you, John was so smart to know that instantaneously. Therefore, I'll leave you with these takeaways. It is fitting for us to join with him in all righteousness. So if the Lord has called us to do something, like partake in communion, like to be baptized, like to go and make disciples of all nations, then we ought to do it to fulfill our righteousness. Takeaway number one, notice this. Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners, with us. Therefore, we are to be baptized to identify with him who is holy, set apart, different, new life. Two, he was baptized to model obedience. Therefore, we are baptized out of obedience. We are followers of him out of obedience. We do what he has called us to do out of obedience. You don't feel like it, but you're being disobedient. That's the bottom line. Takeaway three, his baptism was a picture of nearing salvation. Today, our baptism is a result of our present salvation. Jesus has accomplished everything. On the cross, he said, it is finished. What he came to do, he did it. He accomplished it. He abolished the the problem of sin. He offered us everlasting life and salvation for there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful gift. What a beautiful thing that the Lord has provided for us. And therefore, we ought to respond out of his love. We ought to respond out of his example. We ought to respond out of obedience. And we ought to respond because we want others to also partake in what we have experienced. Let's not be selfish, amen? The triune God delights when sinners repent and are baptized. The triune God is well pleased with the fruit of our salvation. You see, this is all what was part of John's message. The triune God is delighted or well pleased when his people resolve to proclaim his gospel. And I'll leave you with this, a commission. Go, therefore, and tell the world the good news. It's not that Jesus is coming and he is near, as John had proclaimed. For us, it is Jesus is here. So go, tell the world this good news. He has come, 
and judgment is near. For those who are in his grace, this is great news. I can't wait for that. I just can't wait for that. But those who still need to do some soul searching, this is probably a scary thought. Judgment is here? I don't know where I'll land on that. If that's you, I call you to repentance. And I do this lovingly, pointing you to the hope that is before you, Jesus Christ. It's not just condemning words, but it is an invitation to come and see, feast your eyes on Christ. And guess what? He will do the rest. And he's faithful and he is true. The king has come. It's coronation day. The crown is on him. God himself has confirmed him. Therefore, let's go. Amen? Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this inspiring portion, Lord Jesus. We're able to see your glory, truly able to see your glory. How I wish to be able to have seen that myself. But Lord, I am so grateful that it was recorded here for us to know. I am so grateful that you have blessed us with your word, that we would understand truly that everything that you have done for us is so meaningful and so important. Let us not take that for granted. Let us come before you, Lord Jesus, in obedience, understanding that you have called us to greatness. As John was great before you, we want to be great before you as well. And we know that we can achieve that by submitting to you alone. And so, Lord, as we just close, Father, and take a break from this, this gospel of Matthew, I just pray, Jesus, that you would uh, help us continue to think on it, to live it, to exemplify it. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen and amen.